I'd love to have you take your Bibles. Turn with me to Gospel of Mark, chapter 8. We find ourselves at a text that there was some discussion at the office about, meaning about everybody on staff who preaches wanted to have this text. And uh, so I won. But I get to come here today with you. Mark chapter 8, verses 22 to 38. And of course, the sermon notes in your bulletin uh, will be helpful to you. Uh, This morning, also preaching, uh, of course, up at Central, Pastor Kevin down at Grace, Pastor Tyler. This morning at Temple Baptist, Pastor Stephen will make his maiden voyage there to encourage the folks across town. So that's all good. Um, About 15 years ago or so, uh, Brandon Heath, modern singer, you may recognize his name, popularized a song written by some others entitled, Give Me Your Eyes. And, of course, I've heard that over the years and appreciated it many times. It's similar to another song I learned back in the 90s that just highlights our need to to see with different eyes. And, of course, the chorus of of this song, Give Me Your Eyes, uh, it goes like this. Give me your eyes for just one second. Of course, it's addressing God. Give me your eyes so I can see everything that I keep missing. Give me your love for humanity. Give me your arms for the brokenhearted the ones that are far beyond my reach. Give me your heart for the ones forgotten. Give me your eyes so I can see. That that theme, of course, um, of that song burst into my mind as I looked at this text and the others around it because there is a large section of the Gospel of Mark here where seeing is a major theme. That's certainly true in today's text. Do you see? Oh, you think you do. You're proud of what you see. But it could it be that you're really not seeing as well as you think you are? Is that possible? Well, it's certainly possible in this text. And that, of course, we'll see Jesus working on that. Well, I'm excited about this text. If you look at your sermon notes, you see elements of review that are there. And then uh, down to the part called today's text. Um, I mention here that this text marks a high point, and I would suggest a turning point in this whole gospel narrative. 16 chapters, as we will see, of course, in Mark's gospel. But this section, this, this preaching text today, is a high point and a turning point. And uh, it is here that Jesus begins to set his face toward Jerusalem. It is here that we see this great confession, as we'll take a look at here in a moment. But this is a really big deal text, all right? So I want to pray that God will help us, and we will step into today's text. All right, join me, please, as we pray. Our Father, how good it is to open the Word of God together. Thank you for the telling of the story of Jesus here through the the, the pen of Mark, Uh, certainly with Peter's help, it would seem. But our Father, how good it is to hear the story of Jesus and to watch the careful uh, skill and craft Uh, of the writer as he lays out the story of Jesus with deep intent and leads us along on this journey. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to get our arms around this unit and uh, to see how it, it fits in the broader text, and then in seeing those things to find great joy in the content. So, Father, point us to Christ today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So if you look with me again at that part called uh, today's text, a couple other elements I want to I want to to note with you just just to, to kind of see what's going on here. I mentioned that we're stepping here into a journey to Jerusalem, chapter eight, verse twenty-two, culminating in chapter ten, fifty-two. There's kind of a unit here, okay? So beyond today's preaching text, it's stepping into another bigger unit where Jesus is uh, right at this moment, not physically, but mentally, there's a shift toward Jerusalem where he will suffer and die on the cross and rise again from the dead. So today he's still up north in the Galilee region. He's going to journey even further north up to Caesarea Philippi, but his his mind and his heart, as we'll see in the text, are, are heading to that fateful encounter in Jerusalem where his death, suffering and death will take place. Uh, Mark, or sorry, Luke mentions a similar thing, Luke 9, 51, where there's a moment in the journey where Jesus sets his face toward Jerusalem. That's evident in this larger unit because three times in this unit, uh, Jesus very directly comments for the first time on his suffering and death and his resurrection. He says, it's coming. So that begins right here. Up to this moment, he hasn't done that. But in this bigger unit, he does it three times. And of course, his disciples can hardly uh, keep their mouths shut and don't. Uh, the other element we're going to see here, this is the moment of Peter's great confession. But I, I just want to, again, get your arms around the whole unit, the whole, not only the preaching unit, but the whole, uh, whole book. You remember, Mark is leading us on a journey to see Jesus. He begins, of course, in chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And that journey uh, goes all the way to the end of the book, where the centurion then says, truly, this was the Son of God. But other than this moment now, where the disciples finally say, you're the Christ, Messiah, we'll talk about the meaning of that, the, the you find it really uh, absent from the mouths of the disciples, the correct understanding of who Jesus is. And you find it more on the lips of demons. You're the Christ. You're the Holy One. And Jesus says, be quiet. So at the beginning, Mark tells you what he's, what he's after. And the centurion announces it at the end. But here's the moment in the middle where Peter correctly says, you're the Christ. So it's really a, a, a big deal uh, what's, what's taking place in this text. Now... If you'll take a look at your notes and the, the Bible open in front of you, I trust, you see there are three elements we get to look at, three movements in the text. One is what some people find very odd, this, this story of a healing, or the only one, a two-stage healing. What is that about in verses 22 to 26? So there's a healing here, and then there's this uh, discussion with Jesus about the, uh, the disciples uh, defining who Jesus is. And you see the way I divided it up. It might be different from how your, your Bible, if your Bible does paragraphs, it's different from mine, but I think it works better. So verses 27 to 33, and then the crowds again. We encounter the crowd again in verse 34. But I want to suggest it's a different crowd than some of the others. And I'll tell you why. It's a different crowd. So I suspect different things were on their minds. So the blind man, the interaction with the disciples, and the crowd. Those are the three movements in our text today. I want to read the whole thing, starting at chapter 8, verse 22. And you look for those, those, those units, and then we'll, we'll talk our way through them. And look as well for the theme of seeing. It's all over the place. All right? We read this, God's Word. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. 
And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes, laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his, vill- to his home, saying, do not even enter the village. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, moving north here. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? They told him, John the Baptist, or others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Can you imagine? Turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of man and calling the crowd to him with his disciples. He said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. But whoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul. For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me of my, and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Now, I stop at the end of that chapter. I'm aware that in some dividing of the text and so on, many would include chapter 9, verse 1. Uh, with this previous unit, start chapter 9 at verse 2, and I have chosen not to do that. We'll comment more on that next week, all right? So I concluded at the end of chapter 8 proper. So I want to talk then about each of these three movements. Interestingly, um, this this larger unit of what I spoke about, uh, concluding at the end of chapter 10, this journey toward Jerusalem, it begins and ends with the healing of a blind person. Isn't that interesting? I mentioned here it's called an inclusio, those people who do interesting studies. It's like bookends. So this unit to the cross, this unit of journeying to the cross, healing of a blind man, healing of a blind man, to kind of wrap it is kind of interesting. Now, as I look under this section, the blind man who finally sees, or does he? I mentioned already, it's the only two-stage miracle recorded in the gospel, and it's only in Mark's gospel, uh, not the other gospel writers. So what's going on here? Is is it a misfire? Did Jesus try? Was it an exceptionally hard case? Jesus, you know, tried the first zap, and he went, man, it didn't work. I want to suggest to you it was intentional. I want to suggest to you that the two-stage healing is a parable. 
It's a parable of the disciples. That's what I think is going on. And you take a look at the text and you can mull that over too. Uh, different people read this and go, I don't know what happened, or they conjecture in all kinds of areas. That would be mine. I think that this two-stage miracle is, is a picture of the disciples. And I, I find it very interesting, uh, as I look down here under the third bullet point on your notes here, um, I, I reference here chapter 8, verse 18 in the previous section when the disciples are having this conversation about bread and they're missing the point, the text we saw last week with Pastor Ben. You remember in, in verse 18, Jesus says, having eyes do you not see, having ears do you not hear? Don't you remember? And how interesting then in today's text uh, is Jesus Uh, After that initial touch of the blind man, he says in verse 23, do you see anything? I think that's a continuing question. What do you see? Do you see clearly? What do you see? He's asked that of the disciples. Now in the text, he asks it of a blind man. What do you see? Do you see anything? And he says, well, I see partially. And I suspect Jesus in his heart was saying, that's exactly right. It's like everybody else around here. You see partially. Now, I love in this telling of the story, as they come to Bethsaida, which if you, again, I don't know if you deal with maps and things like that. In terms of geography, this is right at the very top of the Sea of Galilee. If you were to look at the Sea of Galilee, the northern part of Israel, Jerusalem in the south, uh, Dead Sea down at the bottom, Jordan River connecting them. Bethsaida would be right about at the top of the Sea of Galilee. And then in a moment, when they shift to Caesarea Philippi, it's like directly north. Okay, almost almost to the uh, out of the Jewish area and right on the fringes, as we'll see in a moment uh, of, of, of uh, the Gentile areas, the non-Jewish areas. But at this moment, Bethsaida, right, right at the top of the Sea of Galilee. And here this crowd brings him certainly a, a more predominantly Jewish crowd brings this blind man. But Jesus, in a different way than others who try to do such things for spectacle. Jesus takes him by the hand, you read in verse 23, leads him out of the village, away from the bigger look of the crowds. He's not trying to make a public spectacle. Uh, We've mentioned already some of the things that we look at and go, man, that's really weird. Don't they know about germs? Well, no, the answer would be Jesus, certainly. But he had spit on his eyes. He'd say, man, that's kind of weird. Um, you, you never know the moment. Uh, if Sometimes people do such things today, uh, not in polite company, but they'll spit on their hands, go like this, wipe off the dirt. You know, we're not really sure exactly what that meant. There was some uh, common idea that the spittle of a healer had special powers. We're not sure really what's going on in the mind and heart of Jesus, but move quickly by that. So move, if that's an ick factor for you, let it go, sister, all right? And just kind of keep on, keep on going because it's not the main point. Jesus lays his hands on him and says, do you see anything? And he says, I see people like trees, partial sight. And I think Jesus did it that way on purpose. So then there's a pause and Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again. And opened his eyes. His sight was restored. He saw everything clearly. I think this is a parable of all that is to come. Okay? Now, so I'm going to move quickly on. The blind man, I have it under that heading, who finally sees, or does he? So quickly move then to the next section. Here's the disciples. I think the blind man is a parable of them. 
So then Jesus goes on with his disciples and in verse 27 in the second heading as you turn the sermon notes, he's with his disciples heading towards Caesarea Philippi. Again, directly north, right at the base of Mount Hermon. And you should know, as I have there for you, it's a center of pagan worship. It was a well-known center of pagan worship right there on the, the border, so to speak, of, of the pagan areas, the Gentile areas. So to go to Caesarea Philippi, my goodness, this isn't Jerusalem. You're heading, you're heading away from all things holy. Um, we, uh, in, in May, as you know, you guys allowed Kathy and, and me to make a trip to Israel before a lot of this, uh, the concerns of today and war and so on. And we were there. We stood right there at that uh, entrance of Caesarea Philippi. If you've seen the, any of the pictures, uh, a hole that goes into the ground. In ancient times, water gushed out. It was viewed as an entrance to the underworld. And uh, water seemingly coming out of nowhere, this big hole. And people would look at that and say, wow, it's, it's coming from the underworld. Sometimes noxious gases would come out, and people saw that as a, as a connecting point to the underworld, a place of pagan worship for Baal or Baal, as we typically call that false god Pan, the half goat, half man. But there were pagan worship sites here. And Jesus takes his disciples there. It's about as far north as you could go. Sometimes when you read the Bible, especially the Old Testament, you will read an expression from Dan to Beersheba. Uh, That would be north to south. Uh, Dan would be the northernmost part of Israel, Beersheba in the south. So sometimes the writer will say from all the way from Dan to Beersheba, it'd be like, you know, all the way from Washington to, to Florida, if you go that way, or from Canada all the way to the south part of Texas. It's a geographical estimation. So he goes all the way to the top before journeying then down to Jerusalem. And it's here, right at this edge, that Jesus has this pivotal conversation with his people. Some would suggest maybe he's sitting on a hillside looking at these centers of pagan worship, which you could see for a little bit of a distance. Here they are, altars and so on, little little places of, of, of worship to false gods as this water gushes out of this underground uh, spring. Here that Jesus says, who do people say that I am? And he takes them right to this place of pagan worship to extract from them a great confession. Now, I think it's interesting if you take a look at the text. He says to his disciples, who do people say that I am? He's leading them from the broader to the more specific. The answer in verse 28, of course, well, John the Baptist and Elijah and others, one of the prophets. And may I say, none of those are terrible things. Those are not small I mean, to, to be John the Baptist raised from the dead or, or uh, one of the prophets or Elijah, hey, this is great. So none of those are intended as insults for the popular crowd to see Jesus as John the Baptist risen from the dead or Elijah or one of the prophets. That's a place of esteem. So don't read those as, ah, they think he's nothing. This would be similar today to a person who says, Jesus, I, yeah, I see him as a great teacher, I mean, one of the wise people, you know, Socrates and Plato and so-and-so and so-and-so. And Jesus, they're, they're not meaning ill, but they're aiming very low. They're missing the mark. So don't read there, uh, please, uh, great, great disrespect. No, those options are amazing, as I have in your notes there. All of them are inadequate. All of them are inadequate. Jesus is after something even more significant. And so he says, who do you say that I am? 
And I take it here he's asking more than Peter, though Peter answers alone. I take this as Peter answering on behalf of the disciples. Who do you say that I am? I don't know how long the silence was. My hunch, knowing Peter from the text, it probably was not long. You're the Christ, or as Matthew would record it, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. This is an amazing announcement. Now, Christ, of course, what is he, what is he confessing here? Christ, which would be equal to Messiah. The word means anointed one. Um, interestingly, you know, Christ, the first two letters in Greek, the X, we would, in, in English letters, the X and the P, or in, in Greek, the chi and the rho, X and R, Christ. It's the first two letters in Greek of Christ. Uh, Cairo, Egypt, of course, named for the first two letters of the name of Christ, uh, a place I visited in Eastern Europe in November, uh, a little city down in Hungary where I was with the pastor and his family. The symbol of their city, try that. The symbol of their city is the Cairo, the X and the P in English letters. But Cairo, Christ, that's the symbol of their city. I picked up a little, you know, $3 magnet that has the, the X and the, and the P. I thought, and, and I'll remember to pray for Balaj and, and Leah. So, so Cairo, Christ, Christ. Well, you're the Christ. Uh, man, this is a big confession. I will quickly remind you, I think Jesus took them to this location for a reason. Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, the Jewish Christ, indeed. But Jesus takes them right to the edge right where the Gentile crowd would certainly have been uh, in, in prevalent, he takes them there for this statement of you're the Christ. And I can't help but notice, have this under the second bullet point here uh, on your sermon notes, Jesus is setting up a stark contrast between the pagan worship of the nations and the worship of King Jesus. And I also believe here, as in many other texts, Jesus, Jesus presents himself as not only the Messiah for the Jewish crowd, but the Savior of the world. And of course, as we saw at Christmas time, the, uh, you know, the Abrahamic covenant, blessing of, of God through the line of Abraham to the world. In you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Certainly the coming of Jesus is, is personified that great blessing to the nations. But I, I, I take this as, as a, a, another repetition of that, that rather than Jesus arranging this big pronouncement to take place, say in Jerusalem, Mount of Olives, overlooking uh, Kidron Valley and place where Jesus would be crucified. No, he didn't do that. He arranges for this pivotal conversation right there by the nations. Uh, who do you say that I am? The Christ. You're the Christ, Matthew's version, the son of the living God. I think it's very intentional that Jesus brings them to that place. I mentioned here your fourth bullet point. Jesus is asking, who do you say that I am? I mentioned here, this is the great question, of course, of the gospel of Mark. That's why we've been working toward it. Uh, we saw the, the guys uh, in the boat, of course, in chapter 441. Who then is this? We've commented on this many times. They're asking a question that in the text is not given a specific answer at that moment. People asking again and again when Jesus heals, Mark represents the question, who is this? What's going on? Who is this man who can do this? Mark doesn't answer it. He leaves it hanging till this moment. So I'm just saying the first section of the text has been, has been waiting for us to get the answer to the question. Who is this? The boys in the boat ask, ask. who is this? Even the winds and the sea obey him. Who is this? 
Who is this man who can cast out demons? Who can heal like this? And now Jesus says, who do you say I am? You're the Christ. You're the Christ. Wow. Now, let's press on this a little bit further. Again, looking at your sermon notes, when Peter says you are the Christ, what does he mean? We quickly say, oh, the Christ, the one who will suffer and die for our sins. Uh, Die on the cross, rise from the dead, the Christ. Uh, God in the flesh. We quickly attach that because we know the rest of the story. But that wasn't the idea in popular Judaism. I would suggest to you that when Peter said, you're the Christ, he didn't mean at that moment all that you mean. I would suggest to you at this moment, even when he says, you're the Christ, he is like that blind man who partially sees. And if you study this more fully, there's a lot of material on this, far more than we could represent in, in, a, in a short time today. There's a lot of material on what was going on culturally in their view of the coming deliverer. And the majority of it, and as reference, you can look it up all the way through the Gospels. You see the disciples hoping for a Messiah who will deliver them from the, the grip of Rome. They're looking for a political savior. They're looking for somebody, and I joked about this some months ago to most people's understanding and some people's chagrin. There were some people who were wanting a Messiah to make Israel great again. Okay, really. That was their intent. The Messiah's going to come. Yes, they didn't think savior of the world, atoning death on the cross. They weren't thinking that. They're thinking, finally, a guy on a horse who's going to lead Israel back to greatness, who's going to get rid of the, the conquering Romans. We hate them. Get him out of here. Finally, a great deliverer. Certainly a, a popular idea, a holy man, a righteous individual, but a great leader, a charismatic leader. It's about winning. It's about taking over. It's about throwing the bums out, cleaning out the swamp. Not to use too many political terms. But that's what they wanted in a savior. That was their understanding. So when, when Peter says, you're the Christ, it would seem, and again, I would suggest the gospels bear this out. It would seem that they're thinking of something very different than what Jesus was, was coming to do. They're like the blind man. Do you see? Well, yes, I, I, I do see. I see people walking around like trees. Jesus saying, okay, you still don't see yet. By the way, when do the disciples finally see I would submit to you they don't finally see until after the resurrection. See, that's when I think they finally see. You hear the disciples, Luke 24, on the road to Emmaus, mulling this over, those two, Cleopas and a friend, struggling with this. We had thought, we had thought he was going to deliver Israel, but now there's these rumors about resurrection. We just don't know. Jesus saying, oh, foolish and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have written. Did it, must this not have happened? So their eyes really are not yet open. Their eyes, I think, later are, are opened in the breaking when they see Jesus in the breaking of the bread. I think, I think somewhere in there, they finally see. You mean this, this was the plan of God from the beginning? But at this moment, as Peter says, you're the Christ, I would suggest he is just like that blind man who sees, yes, he does, better than he did before, but still not fully. It's going to take more. So popular Judaism had, had an idea of a Messiah as a great deliverer, a holy one, a perfect king. 
did not mean, I mentioned here, the popular concept of Messiah did not mean that Messiah would be God in the flesh. They were not understanding what all that meant. And it certainly meant winning, not dying, which, as you come back to the text, Jesus uh, listens to Peter say, you're the Christ, and he began to teach them in verse 31 that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. This is a jarring moment. This is a foot on the brake for the disciples. Screech! But wait, I don't think he knows. Does he know what a Messiah is supposed to be? If he's Messiah, if he's Christ, he doesn't know the script. What do you mean? Suffer and die and rejected. No, throw the bums out. Come on. We all know what the Messiah should be. Don't you? If you're the Messiah, you better get on the right side of history. He says it plainly. Peter then wants to help him out. Can you imagine the, the, can you imagine this moment rebuking Jesus? Would you, would you even come close? Let me, let me correct your understanding, Jesus. You missed, you missed the idea of Messiah. If you're going to be this Messiah person, you, you're going to have to change this negativity. You're going to have to change this whole, you cannot get this narrative of suffering and dying because that's not the deal. White horse and a sword, buddy. Come on, come on. It's like the disciples, again, uh, young, red-blooded um, Israeli guys, uh, most of them young, upper teenagers, lower 20s, most likely all of them. And, and here Jesus acknowledges Messiah, says he's going to suffer and die, and they're going, oh, no, no, no. <laughs> no, no. That, that's, that's not going to happen. Peter says, um, he re- rebukes him, this will never happen to you, Lord. I think we find in other places. Now, interestingly, Jesus then turns Seize the disciples, it says. I suspect Peter is speaking on their behalf. Maybe there was a moment of conversation. It's likely that this conversation was spread out a bit. It's possible that Jesus said what he said about being uh, suffering and dying, and they're walking along, perhaps. Peter's chatting with the other guys, going, we're going to have to straighten him out. Who gets to talk? Peter, you do it. You talk all the time. I can't say it. Come on, here we go. Well, I'm going to tell him this. Jesus sees the disciples, rebukes Peter, and says, get behind me, Satan. Now, some, some of the writers who talk about this say, he calls Peter Satan. Okay, I'm not, I'm not convinced of that as a pronouncement. I think very likely he's referring to Peter's statement as of satanic origin. I think it's a little, a little strong to say he looks at Peter and says, you're Satan. I, I must you come up with that conclusion? I don't think it's required in the text. I think Peter uh, is saying something that certainly would be of satanic origin. You go back to the temptations of Jesus um, by, by the devil. When, when, when the devil offers Jesus the kingdoms of the world without the cross. I'll give you the kingdoms of the earth. Just bow down and worship me. You don't need the cross in order to be king of these. So certainly this denial of suffering has some satanic roots, but I I guess I look at this and think that Jesus is likely rebuking the thought of Peter, maybe not calling him Satan himself, but certainly that that thought that the cross can be skipped is of satanic origin. Interestingly, for for Jesus, the cross is, is inevitable. He must suffer and die. 
rise again. For Peter, it's an abomination. Surely this cannot happen to you. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And I I just, I pause at this moment to, to just remind all of us, sometimes our ideas of what God's plan looks like are very different from what God's idea would be. Jesus' journey as a Messiah is going to lead him inevitably to the, to the cross. The disciples have an idea of a Savior, a Messiah, who will go straight to the winning part. Jesus, of course, two comings, you understand. First coming as our suffering Savior. Yes, indeed, there will be a day he will come as a conquering king. But they saw these two, well, not just one, but they saw the conquering king. They didn't see the suffering Messiah. I'm saying their idea of what God was for was very different from what Jesus had come to do. I, I, I see here a certain parallel to how a lot of times people think, well, I've, I, I, you know, we say, I come to Christ, your life will get better. Oh, be careful how you say that. Are you coming to Christ so that for, for physical healing or more money or coming to Christ to be happier? Is, is this it? Is this what the Christian life offers? Uh, you hear sometimes, sometimes people say, well, I tried Christ. I tried Christianity. Like, well, wh- by what measure did you decide that it was a good idea or a bad idea? What were you hoping for? What did you think you signed up to receive? Did you think you signed up for a happier, easier life? Is, is that it? Better health, long life, better relationships. Is that what you signed up for? What savior did you want? Precisely. Were you signing up to follow a suffering savior? As Jesus will say in a minute, to take up your cross and follow him. Is that what you signed up for? One who would provide forgiveness from sin, for, for, for sins? Is this, is this it? Or did you sign up for a Jesus you hoped would fix everything today? Well, I think that's part of what's going on here. Uh, you're the Christ. You're a winner. And Jesus says, I am the Christ. I'm going to suffer and die. And we have worldviews colliding. So I'm saying then, as you look at the flow of the text, the blind man who finally sees, or does he, the disciples finally see, or do they, and now the crowds. You come down to verse 34, and he calls the crowd to himself with his disciples. That's interesting. So often he speaks to one or the other, but here in Mark's gospel, he calls the crowd to himself with his disciples, says to them this, this wonderful paragraph, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his, his cross and follow me. And I quickly mention here, as you see on your notes, taking up your cross is not a call to be patient with life's minor inconveniences. This has been colloquialized down through the years where people say, well, you know, I have bunions. We all have our cross to bear. And I'm just quickly saying, your bunions are not your cross. Your car that starts every, every third day, that's not your cross. No, a cross in this culture was an implement of death, a wicked death, an awful death. It was well known. Uh, some of the Roman rulers in recent history here at the time of Jesus had not only crucified few people, but hundreds, yea, verily thousands at a time, lined the road with people who had dared 
to, to be part of an insurrection against Rome. There were times that Rome crucified a whole row of people. You know, it would be like Portland to Seattle, the whole freeway lined with crucified people. You want to walk? It'll be awful. It'll be a reminder to you, don't mess with Rome. So when Jesus says, take up your cross, he's not talking about your bunions. No, implement of death. This would have been a jarring comment. Take up your cross. I, I, I wanted Jesus without that. I want a Messiah who doesn't come with the cross. If I'm going to follow you, I don't want to take up an implement of death. Come on. It's supposed to make my life better, isn't it? Take up your cross and follow me, Jesus says. Whoever would save his life. Are you in it for today? Now you'll lose it, surely. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Which, which is it? Where is your life? Is it here or is it, is it following Christ? What does it profit a man to gain the whole world? That would be all the things of today. All the good. All the fun. If he has to forfeit his soul to get it, eternal. What can a man give in exchange for his soul? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels? Now, I, I step back to the to verse 34 for a moment. Who's in the crowd? Who's in the crowd? Now, conjecture answers this. We, we, we're not told specifically. I want to suggest to you, this is a different crowd than some of the others. When you're down in the Galilee region, the crowds would have been far more Jewish. Probably this crowd... We're still up there by Caesarea Philippi. This crowd would have been much more Gentile, pagan, much broader. This isn't Jerusalem. I would suggest this crowd is likely a lot more of a mixed multitude, a lot more, maybe higher percentages of Gentiles. The reputation of Jesus going broad, of course, and to them, this, this, this call goes, and again, I'm, my, my, my mind is captured by Jesus making a call to the nations. The Savior, yes, the Jewish Savior, Jewish Messiah, oh yes, but never far from the Gentile crowd. Always a call to the nations. Uh, the Davidic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, um, all the way through the Old Testament, you find the heart of God for the nations. And I think it ripples through this text as well, as Jesus speaks here to the crowd and makes a, we, would, we might call it an altar call of sorts, though certainly different than what we often mean by that. But an invitation nonetheless, I think, to this, to this perhaps largely Gentile crowd. You want to come after me? Oh, you can. Come. Take up your cross. Embrace death here. Set it, don't find your hope here any longer. And follow me. Follow me. Where's he going? Well, if they follow him, they'll find out. Because follow me would be follow me to Jerusalem, where he will suffer and die. Follow me, he says. What are you, what are you signed up for? Here, Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. He's headed to a cross. They don't, they don't understand that yet. Think about what you're trading here. What life are you, what life are you banking on? The one now? The short one or the one to come, the long one, that which is forever? Which, which one is most important to you? Which, which life do you love the most? 
the crowds are called to follow, but of course, the question would be, will they? I move then a, a couple of comments on verse 38, that closing sentence. Make no mistake when you read this. Jesus says of the Son of Man, when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels, and he will come. Do you hear this? He will come. Of this we can be sure. When he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels, there will be that day. A coming with glory, a coming with power, a coming to rule and reign. Jesus speaks of it often. He speaks of it here. You don't want to be among those of whom the Son of Man would be ashamed on that great day when Jesus comes to rule and reign. And Jesus would suggest that day is sure. He will come to rule and reign. So the blind man, I'm saying, is a parable of the disciples. That's my understanding of the text. You do with it as you wish. But I think, that's, I think that's the point. Do you see now? And then the disciples, do you see now? Well, I think they're seeing partially, just like that blind man. Jesus says here, he's coming to suffer many things. I mentioned, of course, um, the three warnings of Jesus, 831, 931, 10, 33, and 34. In this unit, as he heads toward Jerusalem, he says it three times. This is where I'm going. Will you come with me? It's a call to come, call to follow, a call to take up a cross and follow him toward that journey toward death. As you look at my section called Responding to God's Word, there are, there are two elements here that I would invite you to consider. Certainly, I think they're right, the main point of the text, that place where Jesus says, who do you say that I am? I mentioned already, that is the question. It's the great question of Mark's gospel, and it's the most important question for anyone to ask any person at any time in history, including everyone who's going to darken the doors of this church today. Who do you say that Christ is? And if your answer is anything less than the suffering Savior who will come and die, pay for our sins on Calvary's cross, rise from the dead. Is that who he is to you? And have you trusted that Christ as your Savior from sin? Who do you say he is? And I remind all of us, of course, your eternal destiny rests on how you answer that question. Who do you say he is? And if you fall back to the earlier answers in the text, a great teacher, an amazing man, a great philosopher, truly, truly a great man, but it's short of who Jesus is. That inadequate answer will exclude you from God's heaven one day. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The message of the disciples, Acts 4.12, in Christ alone the way, the truth, and the life. So I ask all of us, who do you say? Who do you say he is? And then my second question here for you to mull over as you head out, what kind of a Messiah do you understand that you are following? Are you following Christ, hoping that he's the one who, as I say here, provides good health or more money, or political savior who runs a country and and promotes better taxes? Are you looking for one to fix life today? A political savior, is that it? Some find that as their goal. And I'm saying to us, that is not the Christ of Scripture. So think about this. What, what is it you're thinking? What is it you're thinking that Jesus is supposed to do for you? Well, 
I would like to pray for us that God indeed would open our eyes to see. If you'd stand with me as we pray, after I say amen, one little piece of announcement, and then I will let you go, all right? Father, I thank you for this great text, a mountaintop really, uh, a high point in the Gospel of Mark. Thank you for the questions that are answered in the text, and for Jesus very clearly telling of his mission a suffering Savior, one who would die on our place on the cross. Thank you for Jesus, our Savior from sin, resurrected from the dead, a Savior coming again. We rejoice in this. And I pray that even today as we look at this text throughout the morning with many others, that the text would be clear and that the Spirit of God would open our hearts to see it and believe it and respond in faith. So, Father, do that, I pray among us in Jesus' name. Amen.